Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, let's just get started, right? Okay. I have I have four movies to talk about. I've seen five movies, but one of them I can't talk about. Oh, watch out. Um, <laughs> just want to make sure people know that I'm seeing movies right. that I can't even tell you about. Yeah, those are just for you. <laughs> Eventually, you, you David, able, not you, the listener. Yeah, eventually I'll be able to talk about it. But no, uh, I'm going to kick things off with the new uh, Steve James documentary. Of course, Steve James made Hoop Dreams and Stevie and The Interrupters and Life Itself. Yeah. Um, uh, this is not in that tier. Okay. Uh, it's called, it was, first off, it has a dumb name. It's called Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. What? <laughs> exactly. So it is about the the only after the 2008 financial crisis the only bank in the country against which criminal charges were brought is a small chinatown bank called abacus federal bank or whatever and got it so they are instead of big enough small enough to jail it's a bad title it's very bad um the movie is mostly good i don't think i mean steve james he just makes good stuff that's what he does um but uh, it, it does suffer a little bit from, I think, it's pretty obvious in the way that it um, wants you to be on this bank's side. Okay. You know, this this small Chinatown uh, bank owned by, you know, uh, in, uh, a Chinese uh, immigrant yeah. um, and and his family. And his family, like, this is the thing about Steve James is that even though this is for him especially this is a particularly like issue driven topic driven movie right um the best stuff is when he just focuses on this family as a group of, course. of people there of course um it's this guy you know this guy's like 80 now and he has a wife and four daughters um and they're all grown two of them now run the bank the other one is like a, okay. an attorney and so they're they're incredibly accomplished successful women they're all awesome and they all all five of them the four daughters and the mother just dote on this guy and it's like kind of weirdly adorable like they're having this meeting that's about to try like they're on trial mm-hmm. you know they might lose their license or you know might have to pay fines or even look at jail time and they're they're talking about it and the two daughters are just overly concerned with their father's lunch order and whether or not he got the sandwich that he wanted <laughs> and whether or not it's going to be too dry because there's not enough mayo on it like it's a really cute i was gonna uh, say that, i was gonna say this is already pretty capra-esque uh something uh, like that uh, uh really really helps out i assume uh, is, is the comparison made at some points to uh, in the film to, to like the the baileys and stuff it's literally the first thing that happens oh, okay. that's what when i when i talk about the the movie being like it, it, it puts its thumb on the scale in terms of framing it so that you're on their side on the side it literally starts with this guy and his wife watching it's a wonderful life and talking about how inspired he was by george bailey ah okay um and so, i mean like I, I am generally on their side because it is the the main argument the movie seems to be making is something i agree with like these huge banks committed way worse infractions mm-hmm. that had way more devastating effects on people yeah and they're not the ones on trial it's this little bank that found out the problem that was happening uh, among their, uh, you know, employees, their bankers fired them immediately and did the correct thing in terms of 
disclosing or you know yeah. presenting the what they what had happened to authorities, and then it ends up being a five year investigation and like a months long trial, like a two month long trial. Uh, to find out if the upper management, these, these daughters essentially at this yeah. point, cause the guy's all but retired, uh, whether they knew what was going on. And so I won't tell you that's the, cause the movie was filmed during the trial. I won't yeah. tell you how it, how it ends out, how it, how it ends up. Um, the press, uh, person specifically asked us not to, <laughs> oh, <interesting. laughs> like it was the sixth sense or something, but he was like, we do ask that you don't reveal the result of the, of the case. Um, but I'll say easy enough to look up. Um, what, what, yeah, that's true. Uh, what I did find really compelling is not just the family, but also the, we start to see Chinatown the way that this guy, Thomas Sung sees it, which is essentially as a Bedford falls. Yeah. Like it's a small town with its own traditions and customs and history that just happens to exist in the middle of New York city. Yeah. But it like the, uh, the, it's a really interesting way of looking at this, of this community and the idea that when the U S government is coming in and investigating things that are going on in this community, community, they're seeing things as criminal that the Chinese in Chinatown don't see. It's just a way of life. You right. know, like the one thing is they're talking about like, okay, well, is this money uh, a gift or a loan? And, they're tra- and, and, and so the, these, you know, Chinese Americans are trying to say like, well, in this, in this, in this neighborhood, in this culture, that's not really, the, the distinction isn't really made. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to give you this money. You can pay me back if you pay me back. If you don't, like, it's not, interesting. It, it, it's, it's an, it's, and, um, and then, yeah, it gets into some interesting banking, banking stuff uh, as far as like these things that I'm talking about, like that's the things I'm saying that seem illegal. The U.S. government's like, no, actually, an in, like a, a bank is allowed to do that. They're allowed yeah. to give loans to anyone they want. Yeah. You know, um, it's when they get involved in the Fannie Mae thing, and, right. and, you know, essentially selling their loans to to investors. Um, you know, that's that's when they get in get in trouble because it's are you know, are you misrepresenting the, what these loans are? Right. Um, you know, is this the, is this the day old fish from the big short? Got it. Yeah. Um, anyway, I've talked too much about it. It's an interesting movie, but it's definitely a minor work from Steve James. Hmm. Uh, I guess I have another one. Yeah. Um, okay. I watched a movie from 1984 that, uh, shot factory recently put on a Blu-ray. Uh, a review is, is forthcoming. Um, it's called dreamscape. Oh, I know the one. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen it? No. So it's it's kind of crazy, right? It's got a great cast, yeah. by the way. It's Dennis Quaid and Kate Capshaw okay. and Christopher Plummer and Max von Sydow and David Patrick Kelly and George Went and like uh, 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 and then some character actors that you and I uh, people like who listen to the show would know, like Chris Mulkey and uh, um, is it. Uh, Jason Peters, the guy from Deadwood, you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah. Hans P- uh, uh, Peter Jason, Peter Jason. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's in it. Like he and Chris Mulkey are like heavies. Yeah. Um, George went is like a, he's like a, a science fiction novelist who like uncovers a conspiracy and he wears a St. Louis Cardinals baseball cap at one point. Um, uh, but the premise is that uh, uh, Max von Sydow and Kate Capshaw are scientists who have found ways to get inside people's dreams. So okay. it's, you know, it's a pre-inception. Um, it's actually pre, um, 
uh, the cell. Uh, yeah. But, but also it's pre nightmare on Elm street, which is, oh, okay. but only by like, they came out within months of one, one another, but oh, clearly okay. like this is some parallel thinking because it gets into the idea of like someone going to your dreams and you, if you kill someone in their dream, they could die in real life. Mm. That ends up being a big part of it. Um, anyway, so they're, 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 uh, you know, figure out this thing. And then Dennis Quaid is this like renowned psychic, but he like lives off the grid and uses his powers to win at horse racing or whatever. Um, and, uh, so he gets like recruited to come in and like go yeah. inside people's dreams. And honestly, like the first half of it is like the whole movie is corny, but the first half of it is a lot of fun. And yeah. there's some really cool, like with the, the way the dreams are realized, like it looks really cool. I mean, it definitely looks, uh, I guess dated in 1984, but it's still, it's very cool stuff. Yeah. These, these little dreamscapes I really liked. It's, it's in the second half when, um, uh, the sort of conspiracy theory that George went uncovered really kicks in and Christopher Plummer is just like noted St. Rid- Louis Cardinals fan. <laughs> yeah. George went, uh, Christopher Plummer is just like flat out evil in a way that's <laughs> kind of boring. Almost like, oh, wow. it's like, there's no nuance here. He's just, uh, you know, he's just awful. Whereas David Patrick Kelly, who turns out to be kind of a, a villain is fucking great. Of course. Um, he has the best. Here's a line that sums up in, in both stupidity and fun. What kind of movie dreamscape is okay. David Patrick Kelly is talking about having killed someone in their dream. Mm-hmm. And he says, I stabbed her with a knife, a dream knife. <laughs> <laughs> It's like something out of uh, the Adam West Batman series. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a fun watch. I think the the second half gets a little dumb, but then again, it does go back into uh, you know the climax happens in someone's dream, and it's yeah. it's it's cool. There's some there's some cool stuff, and it's you know you wouldn't call it. I think it might actually be a Scream Factory release because it does have horror stuff in it. Okay, but you wouldn't really call. Well, it I mean that movie. dream knife. I assume is pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, what did you watch? So unfortunately I've only watched one movie. That is the downside of this time of uh, year, uh, or this time of my quarter. And that, uh, it was a one, two, three punch where I went from, uh, grading papers to grading tests to doing research and writing my own paper. So, uh, I don't know where I found the time to revisit the 1996 John Frankenheimer film, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah. But apparently, wow. I found the time. Um, so. Well, I feel like that, at least in like the parts of like film Twitter and like the film blogs that I traffic, that movie has weirdly bubbled up again in the sense. Well, there was of, that documentary. No, no, I'm saying very recently. Oh, okay. Because with the, the revelations about um, how. Johnny Depp doesn't memorize lines anymore. Oh, okay. There's a lot of comparison to like Johnny Depp now is becoming Marlon Brando. That's... And so there was some, uh, some talk about, uh, uh about that. Here's the problem uh, though, with that comparison, he's becoming Marlon Brando without ever quite having been Marlon Brando. And I think that's a problem. That's an interesting question. And one that we might be talking about on this week's main episode. <laughs> Right after this. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I first saw Island of Dr. Moreau in the theater with my dad. I was, I was super excited to see it. My dad saw it despite 
on his own admission, finding the idea of like animal, animal people finding it very disturbing as a concept. He did not want to see this film. I think I'm kind of with your, with your dad on this. Sure. I find it very upsetting. It is, uh, disquieting. Let's There's put it that way. There's a reason we never saw the pig man on Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so, but I saw, and I really, I mean, I was 14 when I saw it. And so I have no basis for comparison of like what is good and what is not. Um, but I remember liking, liking it quite a bit, um, at the time. And then I think I had seen it after that. And then this is my third time seeing it. And since then I had watched that documentary, uh, uh, Lost Soul, I believe it's called, and it's about Richard Sk- Richard Stanley, the original director of this film, mm-hmm. and what he wanted it to be, and then just how it went so very wrong. And it went wrong in no small part because of him. He just was not ready to tackle this type of production. Um, and once Richard Stanley, I, I don't mean to be talking only about the documentary. Um, once Richard Stanley left. Brando stopped caring. He was, he liked what Stanley wanted to do. And so he was really excited about that. Um, but then, then it's like, okay, well I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And once he stopped caring, almost everybody stopped caring. Uh, and then Val Kilmer had his own stuff going cause he was, he signed on to this, but then he was in Batman forever and his huge hit. And so he wanted to back out, but they wouldn't let him. And there was just all this crazy stuff going on. So knowing that, in rewatching it, I thought like, okay, will I be able to see some of that behind the scenes craziness? You can see it with Val Kilmer, but I think it works. I think it fits his character. I don't know if you've ever read the Island of Dr. Murray. No, have you? Have. It's, it's a very, uh, it's a fascinating book and one that's actually pretty slight, um, in his, uh, larger, um, bibliography, right? I wanted to say filmography. I know that's not right. Yeah, I think bibliography, bibliography sounds right. Yeah. Um, so, because I've read The Invisible Man, I've read War of the Worlds, I've read, what's the other big one? Oh my gosh. The Time Machine? The Time Machine. I've read all his big four, and that, that includes uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau. And this one, and this is the shortest one, and the simplest one. And the film at a lean 96 minutes definitely feels that. Okay. Uh, but the nature of this story is crazy. It is, there are animal, there are animal people running around, mm-hmm. uh, trying not to be that thing. And they keep trying, they keep wanting to be it. And it's worth noting that Dr. Moreau spoilers, everybody in every, in pretty much every iteration, not so much the Island of lost souls with uh, Charles Lawton, but in every iteration, Dr. Moreau does not last very long. Mm -hmm. He dies about halfway through. Um, and then his assistant Montgomery, who is a full on drunk. Um, and in this played by Val Kilmer who, and just choose to play him as a drunk and a pill popper and all of this stuff. And it just, I don't know it, the craziness of the behind the scenes, antics of these people works shockingly well for me. Uh, I'm not going to say this is a good movie. I think it might be trash, but, um, but it's, it's interesting and entertaining and very engaging. And everyone makes fun of, uh, uh, Marlon Brando because he wears that white pancake makeup and he wears mm-hmm. a nice bucket on his head. And I think stuff like that might be, uh, it might, there might be si- a silliness to it, but in his performance, there isn't, it's actually a surprisingly, 
low key performance that I, that I think is, is really effective. Uh, he did not deserve to win uh worst supporting actor, uh, at the Razzies that year. Um, it is, uh, there is and and the makeup effects are marvelous of course it's rick baker and mm. um and the more marvelous they are the more disturbing it is um but ron perlman plays the sayer of the law have you seen any any version no. of okay so you know moreau makes these creatures and then gives them the law which is you cannot be, you can't run on four feet. You cannot like slurp, up, you can't like lean down and slurp up water from the Creek. You have to use cups. Essentially you have to be men. Okay. And so his, his like chief priest is a, is another one of these animal uh, people. And he's played by Ron Perlman in this. And there's a real magist, magisterial quality to his performance. And there's a lot of weight there. And, uh, and it, it's, it's, surprisingly it's not that good of a movie but i find it to be remarkably effective it's a mess but it's a very interesting mess um and if you haven't seen i'd say go and i'd say read the book and then watch island of lost souls and then i've never seen the one from the 70s with burt lancaster but i'd be interested i should read the book i think the only hg wells book i've read is the time machine okay which is cool yeah I've tried to read War of the Worlds more than once. It's not that long, but I yeah. keep getting bored. That's interesting. Yeah, it wasn't my favorite. It might be my least favorite of the four, um, but uh, but I still I still enjoyed it. Sometimes old books make me feel dumb, especially when they're like <laughs> genre books, and I'm expecting yeah. it to be like a good time, and it's like God, this is boring. Yeah, like I should probably try to reread uh, Dracula because I like when I read it when I was younger, I was like. That one is boring. <laughs> okay. You are correct. <laughs> All right. You are correct. Um, Frankenstein holds up. Uh, uh, yeah, the Invisible sure. Man holds up. But uh, I think I read like an abridged version of Frankenstein when I was young, like okay. middle school. Like I don't think I've actually yeah. read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. The whole thing. Yeah. Um, I read all that stuff in high school. I thought it was interesting, but uh, but Dracula was a slog. That but, uh, I just did not. Yeah. More than anything. This is this was basically my response to when I was reading Dracula is I thought, why would anybody write a book like this? <laughs> By which I mean, because it's all it's all letters, you know, it's, it's an epistolary novel. Yeah. No, thank you. Not for me. Uh, I like that word. Even the Bible has a section. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like that. And then it moves on. Um, yeah, I think it, it is a thing that I have where I expect genre stuff to be fun, whereas yeah. like. Nathaniel Hawthorne, I read that stuff. It's like a page turner. Hmm. Scarlet Letter. Interesting. That's a great fucking book because I'm expecting it to have like weight right. to it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like a thing I got to get over. Uh, my the, Antonia, a Willa Cather. Great yeah. book. Anyway, um, there is a, uh, there is one thing. I think honestly, uh, it came down to the, the dis not discovery, but the widespread knowledge of DNA. I I think someone immediately said like, we got to do an Island of Dr. Moreau, obviously. Right. And, um, so there's a part where, uh, Brando is talking about what he's trying to do, which he's, he's trying to like isolate, um, the, the gene or the, the instinct, the genetic instinct in humans for evil. And so he is using, he's experimenting on animals to hmm. uh 
to root that out. And so at one point he's saying, he says, you know, I, uh, I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a bad brand, a British Brando impression, but she's like, he's like, I have seen, he's like, I have seen the devil in my microscope and I have chained him. And it's just like, the hell are you talking about? <laughs> You've chained him. Everybody's going crazy all the time. You've chained nothing. Like, and, but that's the thing. It's, he seems so wise and sage when he says that, like, oh my gosh, he's onto something. He's onto literally nothing. He is just, I guess in that sense, he is a full on mad scientist. Yeah. Uh, you know, just cause he's not cackling a lot doesn't mean he's not crazy. But, uh, but that moment when I was a kid, I thought there was something really profound about that. And then when I watch it, I think like, this is this <laughs> this is not written well. So anyway, sorry, we can move on. All right, uh, I'll probably get through these quickly. I'm realizing now that three of the four movies I'm talking about today are documentaries. So we got two more documentaries. Um, this one is great. It's available on DVD from the Film Detective. Again, reviews forthcoming. If you can't tell, I'm catching up on Blu-rays that I have to review. Sure. Uh, it's a 1975 documentary called "The Man Who Skied Down Everest," hmm. um, and uh, it's not just a clever name. <laughs> it is about a professional a japanese professional skier so it's not like that abacus name which is <laughs> yeah. super clever um who literally hiked he didn't summit everest because i guess from the summit is not a good place to ski uh he got as high up that. as you can find a good place to ski and he skied for like two miles almost down down mount everest um, the thought of that stresses me out and well that's that's yeah. Just the thought of that stresses you out. What you don't realize is that such an operation, like doing that at that level, the amount of people and equipment and time and preparation, like this isn't something you do on a whim, right? Like this was something that someone had to like fund and they had to spend a ton of money to get this project up and going. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it, it's, the narration is, um, I can't remember who the narrator is cause it's in, I watched the English language version. Obviously mm-hmm. it's a British man reading, but he's reading directly. The narration all comes from directly from the diaries that the, this guy kept, um, the skier kept, uh, you know, going up the, up the mountain and his, and his, um, recollections of the actual, actual skiing. Um, but the, the photography of the whole thing, not just the skiing, which is the movie's about 85 minutes long. And the skiing is just like the last, it's essentially like the last few minutes. Of sure. It. Most of it is just the trek up the mountain. Uh, the photography is beautiful. Uh, it's, it's in, in the, in the Blu-ray does a great job. It, it, when did this happen? Um, the movies from 1975, I think the expedition was 72, okay. I think. Um, um, uh, anyway, so it, it, the the Blu-ray looks great. It looks you know grainy. It looks like film, but it's in scope and, and brilliant color, and, and it's absolutely um, fantastic. Uh, and uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. The other thing here's an interesting part of the movie. Um, I didn't, I never did the math. 1972 is only it's less than 20 years after Everest was first summited by uh, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, mm-hmm. and. At this point, when they're going up there, Sherman Hillary is living on Everest, like on a, lower on Everest, yeah. um, in a hospital that was built in his name. And he like so. There's a part where this guy gets to sit down and have like a cup of tea and sit on the porch, like front patio of this hospital, uh, and have a chat with the first guy. <laughs> 
uh, first or second guy. I don't know which, whether Hillary or Norgay was the actual, the first one up there, no. but like the first expedition, the guy who led the first expedition uh, to summit Everest. It's a really cool. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, that's a very cool little moment, but yeah, mostly it's just, um, this guy has all kinds of great turns of phrase. I mean, they're translated in English, obviously, but the, the narration is beautiful. Um, and the cinematography is beautiful. And so it does, it is, uh, you know, it's less, uh, uh, it's less a narrative and more of an experiential type of thing. Uh, definitely highly recommended. All right. And like I said, 85 minutes. You can watch it. The Man Who Skied Down Everest. That's what it's called. Yeah. Okay. As if you could forget that title. Indeed. Okay. I, and then I saw a documentary, a new documentary last night that I can't, I got to recommend this movie to everybody. Okay. Especially the type of people that we are who like, you know, uh, who like movies. Uh, it's called Harold and Lillian, a Hollywood love story. Yeah. I, I just... I just came across that. I was I was looking for a movie to want, to go see the other day, and I opted to apparently not see anything um, for reasons that I'll get to in a moment. And uh, and that one jumped out at me, and I thought it looked uh, really interesting. It's lovely. Okay. It's the uh, um, so Harold Michelson was one of the most um, highly regarded storyboard artists. And eventually actually became a production designer, which is like apparently not a leap that a lot of people make, but he was so trusted like as a storyboard artist, you know, he started working in the late 1940s for Columbia pictures, just in a mm-hmm. room full of artists. And eventually we get to the point where, um, Alfred Hitchcock was asking for him by name and actually flying him to the, the, uh, uh, what the, the Bay, uh, in Northern California where they shot, the birds so he could like storyboard mm. on you know <laughs> there in in person he and he became someone who was um uh utilized um extensively by um mike nichols and then danny devito when he became a director um and danny devito is a producer of the film and one of the main people interviewed um and like has one of the things that's so fascinating about the movie is you realize just how important storyboard artists were. Yeah. I, don't, I think it, like in, in ways that you never would have uh, otherwise. And Danny DeVito loved uh, Harold Michelson to the point where they were actually great friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also see how uh, he was the storyboard artist for The Graduate and like the the iconic shot of the graduate of him of, of Dustin Hoffman framed underneath the, the Anne Bancroft's legs didn't come from Mike Nichols or from the DP. That was something that Harold Michelson drew up. Wow. Um, and there's a number of like, there's, there's like entire sequences from, uh, Marnie and from the 10 commandments where you're just seeing like, they're showing clips from the movie alongside the storyboards that he drew. And it's like, wow, they followed this almost like, shot for shot and like frame hmm. for framing. And then that's why people would ask for him by name. Um, turns out there's a different storyboard artist than Saul Bass. There are, there <laughs> yeah. are two now. Yeah. Um, you know, cause he was someone, and this was, I guess something that was more common, uh, at, at that time when, 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 you know, you're in the studio system is more of a factory is that storyboard artists had to know like, okay, we're shooting in this aspect ratio. Well, I guess, you know, once that became a thing and, uh, let's see what this will look like with different lenses. So they're drawing, to mimic what a lens, how like what a different size lens is gonna is gonna do. It's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then his wife Lillian Michelson ended up, um, you know, she moved from Florida with him and was at first uh, a um, housewife, and she was someone who always wanted to work and um, felt 
uh, unfulfilled, not working. And so he ended up getting her a volunteer position at the research library on the Columbia Studios lot. Um, and then she ended up taking it over and then she ended up owning, like buying the library and moving. She worked at Zoe. She moved her library, library to Zoe, American Zoetrope and then to, to Paramount when that closed. And then, um, she got to move it to dream to DreamWorks in the nineties. Uh, and it's that, that, that stuff, uh, because Lillian Michelson is still alive. So there are more interviews with her. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people did interview Harold Michelson. So you do get to see him talking about his work, but there are current interviews with Lillian Michelson. She's about 87 now, I think. Um, and, uh, um, that part, you know, I guess people like us, I mean, it is, it is revelatory to see how important storyboard artists are, but yeah. we know what storyboard, storyboard artists are. We don't really think about, these researchers that work for studios. Basically the idea is like, okay, we're making, you know, stripes. We need to know what, uh, you know, a Soviet train station built in the late seventies is going to look like. And she'll be like, Oh, I have photo references for that. Or I have like documentation on, on that, like anything that you could want to do for a period, uh, type movie. Um, she tells a great story about, um, researching Fiddler on the roof. And they were like, okay, for the matchmaker, the girls are, you know, dancing around and they're in their like underwear, essentially. I mean, yeah. it's like that full body type of thing, but right. it's they're like, we need to know what, you know, the underwear would have looked like. And Leon Michelson's like, well, I don't have that. No one was taking pictures of Jewish girls underwear in the 18, in the 1890s. Yeah. So she went to Fairfax and Beverly, which is for those uh, who know Los Angeles. That's uh, to this day, it's a very, you know, very Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and she found so this would have been in the early seventies. She found like the oldest ladies she could find, and like <laughs> asked them about their underwear. And the one woman was like, "Well, you know, we used to make our own. Hold on here, I think I might still have one of the forms." Oh my god! So she ran back. Like she probably didn't run. She's yeah. very old. But she went back and she lent Lillian Michelson the actual like form that they would use to make. And so they the 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 underwear that the girls wear in for the, on the roof is based on like an actual uh, uh, form that people use to make their own underwear. Uh, and so there's all kinds of all kinds of great stuff like that, um, and she has all these. She's, but what really makes it is the love story, um, and her as a narrator because she's she's so delightful and she has great stories to tell about about everyone, including herself. Um, uh, she loves uh, Tom Waits, by the way, because like she <laughs> not, she doesn't listen to his music, but she loves him personally. Oh, okay, because when she was on the Zoe trip lot when they were making one from the heart oh sure so apparently her library came became kind of a hangout like there were chairs and some people would just come in and have tea and like read and talk um and that was true even after she left american zoetrope like no. harold and danny devito would hang out and have lunch in the library like even when it was at uh, dreamworks um and i guess like tom waits just started hanging out when they were making uh, uh one from the heart or whatever and she was like i had no idea who he was i don't know about music but uh um, but she, she, she loved him, loved the stories he would tell. Um, and yeah, she's a, she's, she's delightful. Um, and she's the thing that makes the movie and they have a very, you know, uh, non-traditional love story, like, uh, or maybe for the time for the forties, it was a little more traditional. Like he mm-hmm. proposed to her in Miami after barely knowing her. He came uh, back yeah. from the war. She was friends with his younger sister. He proposed to her and then was like, okay, I'm going to go. Yeah. to los angeles and get set up and this was like six weeks later he like sends for her and she t- tells a story about like getting to the train like getting off the train in los angeles and not being sure who he was because she didn't know him that well and couldn't remember like exactly wow. what he looked like 
Um, and then he, um, being, uh, she was like not very traditional. She was like, uh, you know, well, if it doesn't work out, we'll get a divorce. Whereas he was like, we can't get, uh, so traditional that he, even though he had an apartment, once she moved out, he stayed at a friend's place until they got married so that they can move in, uh, move in together. Um, very cute. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, the last thing I want to say, this is in the trailer, um, is that uh, the in the Shrek universe, the Shrek movies, the okay. the king and queen of whatever the land is, whatever, are King Harold and Queen Lillian, and that was DreamWorks loved them, and specifically they the the people who were making the movie named the king and queen after Harold and Lillian. That's neat. That's the movie is such a delight. It's so much fun. This movie, not Shrek. Uh, yeah, I don't remember Shrek that well. I saw Shrek and Shrek two. I never saw the third or fourth one. Hmm. And then there was a Puss in Boots movie, right? Yeah, I think so. I saw the first one. I saw part of the second one. The first one made me chuckle for a moment. And then I realized like, Oh, this, there's no depth to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think I saw the second one. Uh, I saw the part in the bar because it, there's a Tom Waits song. Right. That's that. right. So, but, uh, yeah. And there's a there's a Nick Cave song in the second one too. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. What an odd series. Um, okay, uh, that's it for movies. Um, man, we are blowing through yeah. this thing. This is exciting. What did you talk? What did you watch on TV? Okay, let's, let's keep the pace up. Do it. Do so, a couple, then I'll do one. I watched on Netflix. Um, I watched. They start. They started to uh, post stuff from the American Experience. Um, which was, I think it was on PBS. It was this sort of this documentary series. And so they posted one on war of the worlds. Uh, odd that you mentioned that. Uh, well, you actually mentioned it first. (laughs) You brought up HG Wells. Yeah. Well, I know, but then you mentioned war of the Worlds, So you didn't, you you mentioned war of the worlds first. Did I, when you were naming his novels. Oh, right. And it was time machine that I couldn't think of. That's right. That's right. Um, sorry. Um, all right. Then you know what? I I guess we don't even need you here. Um, I'll do this myself. Um, Anyway, so it was about uh, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast, which I know at this point a lot about. But at the same time, I had just a few days before been talking with my students about Orson Welles and uh, talking about that broadcast. Mm -hmm. And so this documentary is narrated by... Oliver Platt, who Roger Ebert always said would make a pretty good Orson Welles if uh, they made uh, a movie and cast him as a, a slightly older Welles. Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting. It's always an interesting story. Uh, they do this thing that, I don't, that I'm not thrilled with where they have, you know, actors... They have people giving their account of that night, and it's clearly actors playing people giving that account. And I just thought, like, okay, so my guess is these accounts are written word for word um, by people that did witness this. And then they brought in these uh, actors who obviously overplay it and it becomes frustrating. Right. Uh, Cause, and then they shoot it, they shoot those moments in black and white and they're kind of grainy. It's like, okay, so are you trying to fool me? Cause you're not, these people seem like actors who are super thrilled to get the gig. Um, and, uh, but aside from that, it's, it's still interesting when it just, it, I, there's, uh, <laughs> that, uh, this is not related except okay. for the, uh, the flashback thing. 
there's an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer okay. that has a flashback to, there's a character who's very, very old um, because she became a demon. So there's a flashback to her pre-demon life, which is in like the 900 AD era. Okay. And in the flashbacks, they like put some fake like grain on the shots. And I'm like, you're trying to replicate the like eight millimeter cameras they used in 980 AD. <laughs> like what, what is the point of, <laughs> what is the point? They of use this? old timey music. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. 23 skidoo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I love Buffy, but it's always bothered. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, understandable. Um, Yeah. And so they do interview some, some interesting uh, experts who really try to, they try to cut through some of the superiority that we have now. Like when we look back and we think like, Oh, those stupid people that thought aliens were coming. And they said, Radio was kind of it. That is how people got their news. And very few people did this. And so when people heard the hint, people, when they knew about the Hindenburg, it's because of a a broadcast very much like this. Mm -hmm. And so, and they also do a good job of explaining that Mars as a planet was like, had been in the new in scientific news for a few years, Hmm. the idea of exploring Mars, the idea of, of Mars being close. And so, um, so the idea to do something involving Mars, but similar to the Hindenburg. And I don't know if you've ever listened to that broadcast. It is really effective. Hmm. Um, and so, so I like that they, they, they make an effort to, uh, let us know that, yeah, it's easy to look down on the people that, that panicked, but at the same time, you don't know what it was to live at that moment. And so, uh, so it was really interesting. I liked it. It was a lot of it was stuff that I was aware of already, but it's always fun to, uh, look back at this really fascinating, uh, moment in time. Yeah. Um, you know, cause when you think about it, that is a very fascinating single night mm-hmm. in the history of the United States and in the history of, uh, of media. Um, it is, I mean, it is widely considered the, the most important, uh, radio broadcast in the history of radio, um, precisely because it's not real. And so I don't know, it's, uh, I was happy that I watched it. And so if you're interested in Orson Welles or, or, or even the medium of radio, I would say, check it out. It's on Netflix. It is on Netflix. Okay. And then, um, uh, I watched Silicon Valley. Oh, uh, I'm not caught up. Okay. All right. Uh, then I will hold off, but I'll say that there are some, so I watched two episodes. I watched this past week's and the one before that. Those are the two I have. Okay. Watched. I've only seen the first two of the, of the season so far. Some really, really fascinating developments okay. that I'm just when this, here's the thing, just when this show when you feel like, okay, well, we've hit every hurdle there is to hit and they've tried everything there is to try. It feels like this show should start to get repetitive at this point. But just when you think that that's what they're going to do, they have a, Oh, these two, these two characters over here start to have something in common or whatever it is. And you realize like, Oh yeah, there, there are enough interesting characters that you realize yeah, not all of these people have paired off. And if they mm-hmm. do pair off, there's some really fascinating things that can happen. So, uh, so I'm, I'm excited. I'm really, I'm really loving this season. Um, 
no, the second episode, which is the most recent one I watched, had a line from Jared mm-hmm. that for days I would just think about and start laughing, which is his attempt at guy talk when he <laughs> says, Richard, have you seen the new Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition? The cover model has the most lovely and enigmatic facial expression. <laughs> Oh, there's, there's, yeah, Jared continues to be my favorite character. Yeah. Uh, although they're giving big head some good stuff to do this season too. Yeah. Um, all right. But, uh, but yeah, Jared has a moment in episode three in which he talks about all the things, or it might be four. I don't remember. Uh, the things he'd be willing to do for Richard uh-huh. and his, his list gets progressively more disturbing and, uh, it is of course delightful. I look forward to it. So, um, I watched the, um, season three finale of the last man on earth. Um, it was absolutely terrific. Um, I don't know what else to say at this point, uh, except that I'm very glad because apparently this show was on a bubble, but it is coming back for a fourth season, um, which is good because of, of development. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to say for people who haven't, right. haven't seen it, but um, it would have been a bummer to you know for the show to get canceled uh, here because they uh, you know they introduced a couple of new things. As this show, like in some ways, like Silicon Valley, manages to change things up fairly off, often. You know, mm-hmm. they've gone gone from from. Uh, um, we're from Tucson to Malibu and now they live in Silicon Valley actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, you know, it keeps moving things around and, you know, uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say adding cast members, <laughs> um, and sometimes losing cast members. Um, and I think the show has done a great, uh, a great job of maintaining its completely, ridiculous and goofy humor that's a very will forte Kristen shawl type of humor mm-hmm. but also never losing track of how tragic and dark and sad the right. the the setting is um there's a great i'm not sure how far you are on the show uh i believe episode two oh that's of it. the first season okay so you haven't even gotten to Malibu much right. Silicon Valley. okay so i will say this is not a re- super recent development this is somewhat recent there is a kid now Okay. Um, which like the very existence of, if you think about what that means, is this like, cause this is a few years now in right. the, after the, the, the thing has happened. So if there's a 10 year old kid, that means like everyone he knew died when he was like six or seven yeah. and he's been alone, you know? And now so like, obviously there's some darkness there, but there's also a lot of, a lot of humor, um, uh, including you talked about like weird on Silicon Valley, like pairing people together. This is something that shows with big casts can do is like, mm-hmm. let's see how these people, two people work together. And so this kid and January Jones, uh, character have become like friends. And so there's a running joke as thing like in, in the fin- in the hour long finale, especially in the second half where, um, things are going very poorly. Things are very dire as they often are to the show. And everyone keeps trying to like, when he, when Jasper, the kid asked to ask a question, everyone keeps trying to like sugarcoat it. And then January Jones is like, no, here's what's happening. It just tells him like flat out. And he's mm-hmm. like, okay, like he did never freaks him out because right. this kid's been through fucking awful things in his life. And he can probably handle, yeah. you know, uh, what everybody else, uh, can handle and maybe even better. Um, and so, yeah, that, that balance of, uh, completely ridiculous comedy, uh, and, and, uh, real, real stakes, uh, in character work is what makes the show so great. And I'm glad it's coming back. 
All right. All right. You got one more and then we got Amazing Race. Right. So uh, I have Survivor. No, not the most recent episode. Okay. Uh, I missed that. But Jen and I have uh, been watching season 10. Uh, they are currently on season 34, uh, but we had season 10 on DVD and we just thought, Oh, this will be a fun thing for the two of us to watch. And so that is what has been taking up a great deal. What time I do have has been spent with Jen watching season 10 of survivor. And honestly, it's been quite nice because we haven't gotten to spend a lot of time together lately. And, um, and it really is fascinating, uh, to see the evolution of the game, specifically the strategy part of the game. And season 10 is still early enough that somebody can be a very honorable person who is good at challenges and that person can still win. Um, these days that, that mostly does not happen. And, but what's, what's interesting is, this is a season that there there are several in a row where you see tra- certain transitions because you do see players in this season that are thinking more along the lines of a modern player um like the idea of uh the the producers did something rather uh cruel this season where so there's the two tribes and one tribe just kept losing and kept losing people until finally it was uh, two versus eight. Mm-hmm. And then the two lost, uh, a challenge. And so, well, from as far as voting, they'll, they would each just vote for each other. So the show basically said, all right, you guys have to do a fire making challenge. First person to make the fire wins. So it's this woman, Stephanie, who goes all the way to the merge by herself. And even after that tribal council, they still send her back to the, her camp alone. Uh, and so then she, so, so she comes into, she finally does, you know, I guess you could call it a merge. It's more they the existing tribe absorbs her uh-huh. and, and she says something very sad when she first discovers what's going to happen. She goes, Oh, I'm finally going to have friends. <laughs> it's like, that's very sad. But there's a guy on this other tribe who recognizes like, we got to get this woman, Stephanie out. She's a very strong competitor. She made it all the way. If she goes all the way to the end, she has a story that no one will be able to resist. That's a modern way of thinking the person, a person having a good story. And so, uh, so on the episode we actually just watched, she did get voted out. But, um, but that's something that I, that I find interesting is these earlier seasons, not the earliest, but these earlier seasons, when you see the show, it still is a very different type of show and it's still a very different type of game than what it is now. But you see flickers of people who realize, oh, okay, I think I see where this could go. So, uh, so I've been enjoying it quite a bit. Uh, it's fun to go back on a show like this that does evolve over time. It's fun to go back and see where it started. Um, that's great. Um, speaking of sad things though, okay, we didn't talk about the saddest phrase that has ever been said on television, which was on Amazing Race recently. Okay. The episode where Ashton and Vank got uh, eliminated. I know the one you're talking about. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When she was like making, had to make a ghost out of him, like a plaster, and she said, you're a beautiful ghost. And he says, I always wanted to be a beautiful something. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it hurts so bad. Yeah. That's the thing the listeners can't see. The thing you did is like 
that's hilarious and so painful. My wife and so I did painful. that. And then the next week they put it in the previously on section yeah. and we had the exact same reaction. Yeah. Oh, poor Vank. Poor Vank. Um, anyway. Okay. So let's talk about the amazing race. Spoilers, obviously, obviously for the amazing race. Yeah. This, this crop of teams, the, this is not your crop of teams. <laughs> I mean, I just don't understand this. I guess to go what, what you were talking about on survivor, uh, when you were talking about when we were talking about Amazing Race last week, and you talked about Survivor, the social game, I don't get that. Yeah, the way that this both both times now, the way that this crop of teams has used the U turn, it baffles me. Yeah, why are you U turning the teams that are the most vulnerable? Yeah. They're probably going to go home on the next leg. You use the the U turn is your chance to stick a stick in the spokes yeah. of the strong team. Yeah. That that's that's the only thing that makes sense to me. And so do U-turn Liz and Mike who like were they're a wreck anyway. They're not going to do they've yeah. been they've been saved twice. Yeah. There's no there's no way that that's uh that they're that they're making it much much further. And it's no. glad, you know, again spoilers. As as glad as I am to see them go because I I like Liz. I did not like Mike as we've yeah. talked about. Um it would have happened like next week anyway. Yeah. I don't, I just don't, I'm glad that team fun, uh, survived. I don't know why. I mean, I think team fun maybe is more of a threat than they seem. I think so too. Yeah. Um, because they're not like, you know, obviously like, um, uh, Matt and Redmond are both in great shape. Right. Uh, as are Logan in London. Um, you know, and really, uh, Tara and Joey, is that, uh, his name? Um, the Boston. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like they're more your standard strong teams, <laughs> you know, no. whereas I think team fun looks cause they're like goofballs, you know, and they're both short. Um, like I think they don't, yeah. they don't look formidable, but I think I do. And I do kind of understand you turning team fun because I think they're more formidable than they look. Well, and there's something to be said for being in sync and uh-huh. they are remark, especially this season, they are remarkably in sync. Now I think by, by this time, most of the teams are but team fun just seems to exist on the the exact same wavelength with each other and so um so i think that does make a a difference but yeah the idea that that we are going into the last section of the of the game or the race and there are still this many strong teams i mean it speaks to the power of the social game but it also speaks to people's uh stupid prioritization of the social game yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, and 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 you know even even Mike saying something like, you know, oh, we helped her so much and and it's like, yes, that was probably a good call, but you can't count on that. Yeah. You know. Even though he did literally say no U-turns and she said no. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, he, did, he he did he did seem to like make clear I am helping you in exchange for you not you turning me in the future. And, they yeah. did, and she did exactly. But I'm sure she doesn't even remember saying that. Oh, no, she was of like not. a total mess at the time. Yeah, she would have said anything uh, in that moment. No. Um, yeah, and that's the thing is is you turning a, a, a weak team. It's something that's happened before, but only if you are, if there are six teams and you know that you're fourth or maybe third, you're not sure, but you definitely know who's behind you. And so it's like, this yes. is a guarantee way that I yes. won't be last. But if you are first and you know, you're first, 
then you just go with whoever the next strongest team is. Yeah, or don't even use it. Or don't because use there's it. something to be said in, in terms of the social, social game. There's something to be said for karma. You sure, know? sure. Like, why piss off a team who might make it? Right. If you're if you know if you're not if if you're not threatened, like that's I've. Uh, I've I've often said that if I would be on the Amazing Race, I often thought when I when I've talked about it with Natalie, like that's the only reason I would use the U-turn is if I felt pretty certain that I was going to be eliminated if I if I didn't, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I I I don't think that it's worth. Yeah, I don't think it's worth doing. Like, I mean, Vank and Ashton in the first U-turn there's been three U-turns. Um, yeah. Uh, the first time when they they U-turned Matt Redman, um, it kind of made sense, but it also you know, Matt and Redmond then had a vendetta that they managed to carry out uh, for the rest of the, 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 the race. That can be the downside of you turning a strong team is they might actually overcome it just fine. And then you're stuck with them for the rest of the for as long as either of you are around. Uh, yeah. And then you'd like to think that they could understand it's just a game. But I don't. But people uh, do. The people do take getting you turned personally. Sure. Um, if anyway, you and I, if you and I were to run the amazing race uh-huh. aside from getting uh, out first uh providing somehow that didn't happen let's say we got a pass that got us to uh, the fifth leg um and then someone u-turned us uh-huh. uh i feel like i would have a it's hard to know in that moment but i feel like i would have a pretty good understanding of hey you know that's the way it works yeah i i feel like you can come you i'd like to think i'd be able to compartmentalize like i'd be really pissed that i was u-turned but i wouldn't necessarily be pissed at the person who u-turned me because i understand that's the way but you know we can't speculate we've never been on the amazing race indeed um yeah, I'd I'd love to go, but I don't. Uh, I'd love to try out. I don't know who. Like, you're not, come on, <laughs> you're not a runner. No, and I can't uh, as much as those stairs, man. Was that last week or the week before where they had to like run up? Like, oh yeah, that was boy. And and, and, and Mike, who has already made it clear, doesn't like going upstairs. Had to yeah. go up twice because he forgot a goat. Um, but uh, so yeah, I, obviously I'm not uh, gonna go on the amazing race with you. Um, and I've, the thing with with me and Natalie is like, um, she has said because she is a she's been a vegetarian for like 20 years, right? Um, and she said like I'm not eating meat. Like I would rather it's more important to me. Like I would rather just go home than eat meat. And so I'm said okay, well then obviously we can't do the race because yeah. you could be like. Who was it? Cat and uh, Michelle. What were, what were their names? Who had to eat a, a sheep's head? They had to eat all like the face of a sheep. Do you remember that? Were they the doctors? Yeah, they were the doctors. And I think one it was, of them wasn't was a cat and Nat. Cat and Nat. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. And one of them was a vegetarian. Yeah. She kept saying like, "Tastes like a million dollars." And um, uh, so I, obviously, I can't go with Natalie. But then once, if I ever say to Natalie like, "I should go on the Amazing Race with Blank." Then she's like, "What?" <laughs> like she no. she wants to go with me, but also has admitted that she would sabotage the team. So sorry, Natalie, we're not doing the Amazing Race yeah. together. I gotta uh, say, sounds kind of toxic to me. I don't <laughs> like it at all. Um, um, yeah. So uh, if you're out there and you're friends with me and you want to do the Amazing Race, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I would totally try out. I remember that uh, on earlier episodes of uh, Never Not Funny. Uh, Matt Belknap and Pat Francis said they would like to do it. And I feel like I, Matt and Pat, that would be a delight to watch. I think they did make it. An did audition they really? Tape. I think they did. Oh. Um, but yeah, uh, that's, yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, 
All right. Uh, is that it? Oh, you know what? What else I wanted to say? What's that? Is that I am warming up to Brooke and Scott as a team. Even though Brooke it like, happens. drove me crazy. Yeah. I feel like they've like they've found a level of getting along. You know, like I don't think they like each other really. Right. But I think like basically like Scott has figured out how not to like push her buttons. Right. She was like, you know, she's per- she's a person who's prone to to panicking and giving up early. Mm-hmm. And he, I think was making it worse a lot of the time, but yes. he would react to that. And I feel like they, they found this symbiosis that probably like it might last them through the end of the amazing race. They're not going to be friends after this, No way. <laughs> uh, yeah. but I've, I've started to enjoy watching their interpersonal dynamics. Yeah, they are. They tolerate each other. And sometimes that is the most you can hope for.